The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. We're finishing up a series of talks on the Four Noble Truths, one of the most potent and central teachings that the Buddha used, a model or way of talking about our life, this human life. Um, over and over again, he used this particular model and came back to it. It's one of those teachings you find in all the different Buddhist traditions. In fact, one of the things that's central to the different lineages in Buddhism, even though the outer forms can look quite different, the one thing that is the same, whatever, wherever you study, is this teaching on not non-clinging, you know, realizing the mind or heart that doesn't cling, doesn't cling to experience. And of course, it's our deep habit to cling. Even the idea of non-clinging, we can cling to. You know, we can get real excited about non-clinging and cling to that. Like, oh, I'm going to be the person who doesn't cling, which of course is clinging. Or we can think clinging is stupid, and that whole teaching is stupid, and we can cling to the idea that it can't be that simple. You know, happiness can't just be a matter of not clinging, not attaching. Achan Chah, this famous Buddhist monk, meditation teacher from Thailand, and the teacher of many of current well-known Western teachers, he said, let go and rest in the unconditioned, in pure awareness, the one who knows. And he's pointing to this experience of non-clinging, or this experience of letting go. Letting go isn't something the ego does. It isn't a self-centered activity. I should let go, and I'll be a better person if I let go, and I'm a bad person if I don't let go. Letting go arises due to insight or the development of wisdom. And what are we, uh, what are we having insight into, or what are we wise about? Well, the mind understands, in a sense, this is just one way of talking about it, that there's the mind, and then there's the activity of the mind. Everything we know is the activity of the mind. This talk, your own thoughts, your reactions about this talk, the way you're feeling in your body, sounds, sights. This is all alive. It's moving. It's active. Sights are active. Sounds are active. Thoughts are active. Sensations are active. Smells and tastes are active. These are all the ways we know the world. And in all the ways we know the world, they're characterized by being alive. It's dynamic. Nothing's fixed. This is all activity of the mind. And then there's the mind that knows this activity, we could say. This is sort of often, in the Thai forest tradition at least, the way they talk about the Buddha. The Buddha is, is a realization. It isn't the historic person, although we call that person the Buddha because he had this realization and was able to talk about it in a way that is helpful for us, inspiring for us, that the Buddha as an awakening experience is the one, is that mind that knows the activity of mind. 
And because it's because of forgetting or missing the Buddha, the one who knows the mind, we're identified, attached, caught up in the activity of the mind. What's being seen, what's being thought, what's being heard, what's being felt in the body, what's being smelled and tasted. So all of the sensations we basically become identified with. So the subject, who we are, what we are, becomes uh, fixed or defined by objects. You know, like the object I'm bored. Well, boring, being bored, you know, that's an activity. That's something that happens and can be known. But that's, we become bored, or I'm a man, or I'm stupid, or I'm smart, I'm important, I have no power. So these are all experiences. These are all active things. You know, I'm depressed. The, the being depressed is an active unfolding. It isn't a self. It isn't a thing. So constantly, we're the subject is sort of the ultimate subject, and the ultimate and the objects are being confused. The subject is getting lost in the objects, caught up. So this realization is really this path of the Four Noble Truths. Because when there is this confusion, the mind and the activity of the mind, when that's confused, not seen clearly, then there's always tension, there's always stress. Because where the mind is identified with things that come and go. So we have to keep reestablishing, patching up, finding ground. We have to keep on making up meaning, establishing ourselves, defining ourselves in some way, creating meaning. Isn't that true that we're uh, very dependent on meaning? Whatever that meaning might be. I mean, we, we'll take negative meaning, like I'm bad, over who knows? <laughs> or why does it matter? You know, like why do we have to define ourselves? We think to be a skillful, engaged human being, we have to define ourselves. But we can experiment living a day, living an hour, with things undefined, not the mind not dependent on any particular meaning, any particular definition of who we are or who the person is we're talking to. Like some of you I know have children. So it's so easy when we're interacting with a child or interacting with a friend or a partner, it's so common to define the situation according to who I am, who I think you are, what I think is going on in this. But we can experiment having an interaction without things being defined, without actually knowing who we're talking to. I mean, in a conventional sense, we can say the person's name, you know, we can remember some history about that person if it's somebody we know. But the mind's not established or defined or dependent on that. It's engaged in this conversation, let's say, or this interaction or this activity together. But it's really free in that engagement, that conversation, that activity. It isn't sort of forcing the interaction to be dependent on fixed meaning, who I am, who you are, who we are together. So 
This is why we have to begin with there is stress because it brings the attention right to the crux of the problem. We look, oh, there is stress. This is relevant. This has been understood. These are the first three insights and uh, first noble truth. There is stress. But even when things are going well, there's stress in the mind. Because we're worried, maybe not very conscious of it, but we're worried that the good, what's going really well, we're worried it's not going to last. And then if we understand there is stress, should be understood, it has been understood, then we can see, we can begin to see the mechanism of the cause. Oh, there's a cause. It's here right now. It's not like back then that caused the stress or tension in the mind. But the cause is right here. The mind resisting, the mind getting identified. So we're identifying with some of the objects that are coming and going in the present moment. Remember, thoughts are also objects. It's not just external experience, like what I see or what I hear that are objects. But everything I think, every emotion I feel, every sensation I feel, these are also present moment objects, obviously. And we see there's a cause. This cause should be abandoned. The identification with what comes and goes should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. So this is the unfolding of insight. There is a cause. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. So the mind is entering this freedom. This is what the second noble truth is about. We're going from being reactive to seeing the mechanism for the pain of that reactivity, that struggling. It's the mind getting identified with objects, taking things personally, basically. When we take something personally, it's always happening in the present moment, right? So if that's a present moment activity, the mind actually has to do something based on what we call in Buddhism wrong view, like that it is personal, the mind grasps. It takes a hold, as if, you know, in the equivalent, in a mental way, equivalent to a physical way of grasping something. That's why grasping is such a, I think, useful word, because the, that's exactly energetically what the mind is doing. It's grasping something. It's creating a constriction. And, it, and ironically, it's exactly that constriction that makes us feel so real in a personal way. Like, if I'm not really here, then why do I feel so tight? So it's exactly this habit of mind to grasp that reinforces the sense of being separate. Because how could I be hurting? How could I be tight? How could I be worried? How could I be needy if I didn't exist in the way that I think I exist? So we have to see that that grasping is something that's happening right now and that it's unnecessary and that it should be released. And then in observing and knowing that, it does release because nothing lasts for long. And if we're not reestablishing the grasping, we'll notice the grasping ceasing. Because like I said a moment ago, when we grasp, when we identify with a particular object, like a thought or a memory or something we see, and we identify with it, we take it personally, that's only in that moment. And we have to reestablish that grasping moment by moment by moment. If we don't, grasping ceases. 
it's not like I got attached last week and I've been attached for two weeks or whatever. We have to keep reattaching, reidentifying, re-reacting moment by moment by moment by moment. So if we are observant, if we're mindful, we'll see, oh, it's this moment by moment by moment activity of grasping that's at the heart of suffering, of any kind of mental stress or tension, any sense of separation. This is the crux of it. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. That's an insight where we see the mind releasing. And we experience the third noble truth, which is there is cessation. There is, um, there is, it is possible for this mind to realize cessation, to exist without grasping, without any attachment. It's like a free fall, literally. Initially, and as this insight kind of starts to arise more and more consciously in our practice, because as I've suggested, everybody here has experienced an infinite number of moments of cessation of grasping, of greed and aversion and delusion. Because, you know, if all that attachment never ceased and we just kept attaching, you could imagine we'd be dead. There'd be so much constriction in the mind. So the thing is, the mind does get attached, it does react, it does get identified, it does get caught in some idea of fear, or some idea of neediness. But then that ceases and it has to recreate it and then it ceases and it recreates it. So it feels like we've been attached since the beginning of time. And in a sense we have, in a superficial sense, but it's actually arising and ceasing. What we need to realize is that cessation. So that's a realization. The Buddha says there is cessation. This should be realized. It has been realized. That means we really get, like in a sense, we get that grasping is extra. It's unnecessary. It's optional. We learn like that it's okay to live in this freefall, just to let life happen. You know, we talk, we even have cliches about, you know, being in the zone. People experience it in moments of their lives, whether they're playing golf or knitting or walking with a friend or walking by themselves or whatever it might be, laughing with somebody. And the sense of self, the sense of needing to get somewhere or needing to control things, all of that self-centered grasping activity ceases and things feel very light and alive and effortless and okay, capital O, capital K. Deeply okay. Like it's not a problem and it hasn't been a problem and it can't be a problem. That's the flavor of a moment of cessation. A deep, what arises from that is a deep trust in this. I call this life or whatever you want to call this, this mind and body, this existence. But a deep trust, like, I mean, most of us go through life suspicious of life, you know, like somehow, either with some nihilistic tint to our view, like, you know, we're just sort of random things, and it's not very pretty, or something like that. Or we've been abandoned, or, we, you know, kind of a hopefulness that there's some loving being that's taking care of us all but deep suspicion and then kind of maybe a feeling like we're just fooling ourselves and yet we don't want to really go there and 
But all that resolves itself in a moment of cessation because all of the anxiety, all the nihilistic anxiety, all the grasping for some meaning, some way of explaining this world, all of that has ceased because all of that is neurotic activity that comes out of a sense of separation. And what we've done, what the mind has done, it has noticed, it has realized the moment of this absence of self-centered activity. And it's conscious now. I mean, like I mentioned, this happens all the time, but we're not aware when that happens. We're not awake to moments of cessation. We're awake to the more dramatic moments, like when we're attached and we're active and we're needy and we're hateful and we're bored and we're certain, you know, like life is bad or life is great. These are the moments that, in a sense, get our attention and we wake up and we notice them. And because we're only awake for those moments, it seems like there's been a continuity that, well, life has always been this way. But it's because we have systematically ignored or missed certain moments and systematically recognized and grasped and identified with other moments of experience. So the whole path of the Four Noble Truths, when we orient towards stress, recognize its present moment cause, in order to get that that cause is here, then the mind gets interested in the arising of the cause and the cessation of the cause and the experience of cessation. Moments when the mind isn't grasping at all. Like this, as I mentioned, this free fall. You know that old uh, saying that, you know, if you're a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And if we have this view that uh, life is a problem, I got to get somewhere or I got to get rid of something, then, you know, everything, if, if this is, you know, if we're a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. If we're a doer, then everything we see or experience in our life looks like something we should do. There's something I should do about this. I should grasp this. I should push this away. I should fix this. I should run away from that. I should ignore all you guys or I should pay attention to you and so everything we experience in life looks like a project for a self to do does that sound familiar <laughs> wherever we go you go home tonight and it's like immediately what your mind what our minds see is just projects <laughs> we look in the mirror we see projects <laughs> you know we see other people These are, this is the person I want to get to know this is the person I don't really care whether I get to know they're all self-centered projects everything even you see a beautiful tree and you'll think of a pro oh I want beautiful trees like that in my backyard or how it reminds me of the north woods I, I have this project to get myself back to the north woods how can I do that and you know, all of those projects, then, then we've created this meaning that there's this person who needs to do this in order to be happy. Because if there isn't that in order to be happy, it's not really a project. I gotta get rid of this in order to be safe and happy. I have to attain this in order to be safe and happy. So whenever we're in that mode of attainment, of getting, that means we're insufficient now. And if we're feeling completely sufficient, then that doesn't have any meaning. So the practice, this letting go, this and this uh, realization of cessation, then leads to the fourth noble truth, 
which is, oh my goodness, there's a way, there's a path. Once we awaken to that moment where the mind isn't grasping, isn't reacting, isn't identifying, so the mind is free of all that neurotic activity. And what's realized is a kind of effortlessness, like the happiness is effortless, it's inherent. It's there when the mind isn't obscuring it through its self-centered activity. See, it's a reversal. From a self-centered, grasping, struggling point of view, happiness is always out there when we get what we think we need or get rid of what we think we need to get rid of. But from an awakening point of view, from a point of view of awakening to cessation, happiness is here as long as the mind isn't involved in grasping. So you see, it's a revolution. The path or the way to happiness gets flipped from uh, happiness is about attainment. If I just get, I think they say now you need about a half a million dollars in your retirement, you know, when you're about my age, in order to kind of have a decent, you know, you know, assuming you're going to live into your 80s, a decent life. Well, I mean, that's, that's a heavy trip. <laughs> so now the way isn't about this attainment, like getting that kind of bank account or getting this kind of house or getting this kind of body or this, getting this kind, these kinds of relationships or this sort of power or whatever we think will make us happy, that image of us being happy. Or even like, really get my meditation practice together. God, if I could just get my concentration together and realize those states of calm, I'd be set. <laughs> you know, I'd be able to go through life just humming along, <laughs> barely touching earth. People would respect me. <laughs> so whatever the attainment is, you can paint that as pretty as you like, but it's still stressful. But with a moment of realization, because the experience of realization is this capital O, capital K, it's okay. It's, it's already okay. It's always been okay. And even when I forget, it's still okay. Meaning even when I get caught up, there'll be this visceral memory in the background that as much as the momentum of your personality is telling you you're screwed up or you need to get something, I have this deep, resonant, underlying sort of feeling that it's okay. It's okay to be screwed up. It's okay to be needy. It's okay to think I need a half a million dollars in my IRA. So, like, it's not even that I have to reject that neurotic stuff. It's like everything belongs. The messiness also belongs. So this okay isn't some kind of transcendent okay. It's like it's okay as it actually is. The world, this life, this personality, the health we have. Because the okayness is what we say in the Buddhist tradition is unconditioned. It's not a conditional okay or a conditional happiness. It's unconditioned. So you see how it flips the whole idea of what the path of life is about, the way the happiness is about. So now the way, the path, in a sense, is about remembering this insight and creating the conditions that lead back to the same insight, the same realization, over and over again, so that it becomes 
more integrated, more who we are, this insight, this realization of capital O, capital K, over and over again. As opposed to getting someplace, becoming someone, getting rid of something, which is what, you know, our strong conditioned tendency, that's what we've been conditioned to do. That's our deep habit energy, to get to the right place, to have the right life, the life I was meant to have, the life, you know, that that without it, you know, like this terrible stereotype about the perfect partner out there. I mean, I found my perfect partner. <laughs> but what, what makes, but what makes when perfect is the realization that it's like uh, this person, you know, and this person, this personality, and this life situation is perfectly fine. It's perfectly adequate for full and complete happiness. And even if having to break up or having to change jobs or having to, you know, re rework our life, even if for some reason that feels compelling, then that activity of redoing our life is also, those conditions are also perfect conditions for happiness. Because the happiness now, with realization, the happiness we're looking at is unconditioned. It isn't about whether my partner is perfect for me or troublesome for me or my body is perfect for me or troublesome for me or my occupation is perfect or troublesome. It's where we're looking for happiness. Are we looking for happiness in the activity of the mind? You know, the 10,000 things, sights and sounds and thoughts and smells and tastes and sensations? Is that where we're looking for happiness? Because that world is very much alive with insecurity and uncertainty and change. That's exactly what it's characterized by. There is no landing anywhere in the world of the six, six things of sight and sound and smell and taste and touch and thought. So if that's where we're deriving happiness, it's always going to be fragile and insecure. We're always being neurotic because there's always a somebody who needs things a certain way, frightened because of the change that's inherent in it. It will always be unstable. When the more we realize the mind, the heart, Buddha nature, emptiness, you can call it God or divine, or uh, what I like is the nature of things, or Dhamma, the way it is, the more we realize this and, and experience an untaste, an unconditioned happiness, a happiness that's not dependent on grasping anything or pushing away anything or needing things to be other than they are, then our whole life begins to shift. We get interested in finding peace and happiness in the midst of our busy, messy, neurotic lives. And it's so nice because then now we can really, now a lot of people think that that means we're going to get distance, but it's just the opposite. Because now we can really pour ourselves into our messy, neurotic lives because we're not looking for happiness there. You know, the reason we hesitate getting committed to our partners or committed to our jobs or committed to exercise or committed to taking care of the problems in the world is we think we've got more important things to get to in order to be happy.
But when we realize that happiness is already here, then life is just allowed to pour into the circumstances. The Buddha has this great quote. He says something like, and Jack Kornfield quotes this passage from the Dhammapada, this collection of verses from the Buddha. As a bee gathers the essence of a flower and pollen without harming it in any way, so the wise wander freely in this life, carrying only blessings. And I think that's such a beautiful image about that synchronistic, like when we're not in this place of non-grasping, then everything we do, because in those, in those moments, greed has fallen out of the mind, aversion has fallen out of the mind, disconnection or distraction or delusion has fallen out of the mind. So how we are in the world, in our relationships, in our interactions, it's not neurotic. It's like synergistic. We're supporting everybody, everything we're doing, in what we're doing, rather. Because there's nothing about me, there's nothing in me that's trying to make things other than they are. So all that's left is compassion and gentleness and kindness and, you know, powerful responses and powerful letting things be, you know, just depending on the particular conditions. Another image that's used quite a bit in the Buddhist teachings is water flowing down the side of a mountain. So in that experience of non-grasping, that you could think of two different, you know, two different sort of points of view. One is the natural way, the intelligent way water flows down a slope. You know, it's, it knows how to flow down the slope by being intimately connected to the experience, to every rock, to the texture quality of the soil, right? It's that actual connection that directs the water down the slope of the mountain. Now imagine if, you know, the other option would be sort of somehow nature sort of pulls itself out of the experience, sees itself as a part from the whole, and, and then wants to figure it out. I'm going to figure out the slope. You see, the water doesn't need to figure out anything out. It doesn't need any meaning whatsoever to do its job. It doesn't need to define the problem. I'm up here, and I need to get down there. But it, as a human being, because of language and because of you know the complicated uh, minds or brains, who knows for what other reasons, but we've we've created this problem where we have this capacity to, in a sense, step outside of the whole, construct the idea of being outside of the whole, and then being confused by the idea that the mind is constructed, right? The mind constructs a sense of separation. I'm here having this life. We get confused by that idea, and then we get, in a sense, stuck in that idea. So then it's like me, I'm the water at the top of the mountain, and I feel personally responsible for figuring out, like, and then I get frustrated because it's so clumsy to be separate. So I get frustrated, I, I feel betrayed by life, you know, and I just want to stick my head in the sand or something, but, which doesn't work. What really works is a very careful, honest reassessment of what's going on. And then the water realizes that it's all happening on its own. 
I just need to trust this life like water going down a mountain or a bee collecting pollen. Everything knows what it's doing. The whole, in a sense, knows what it's doing. But that takes a radical letting go, doesn't it, to trust our life. Because one of the things our complicated mind, language mind can do is we can imagine what we consider a better life or a worse life. And the thing is, this thing we constructed, this thing that it feels apart from the whole, then neurotically we feel like we have to protect something that doesn't actually exist. We create this idea, this sense of being separate, and then we intensely protect it even though it isn't what it appears to be. It's just a projection or an idea that we're apart. And that's really what's behind the suffering. So moments of cessation is the popping of that whole bubble. We realize that's just not how it is. It's okay. It's altogether okay. And this isn't like a hopeful vision. This is a direct experience. Like in the bones, everywhere, the experience of realization, everywhere, every fiber of the mind and body understands it's okay. It's really okay. And it, every time that insight arises in the mind, that moment of cessation and being awake for the moment of cessation, it just begins to erode the momentum to, to do that thing again, where we separate and then get confused by the sense of separation and then need to protect it. So we're patching it up over and over again. And whenever things begin to dissolve, we get frightened like something terrible is going to happen. One of the things we have to get familiar with in the practice is the dissolution of that false sense of self that sense of separation. We have to let it fall apart. We have to let it go. We have to trust that it's not dangerous to let go of this neurotic, tense stance in the moment, that we can really let it go. We can let the body relax and we can let the mind relax. Even in something, this is why we do things like pay attention to the breath or pay attention to sound. It's not easy to just let the breath happen on its own. It feels so important that there be somebody sort of there. Even if that somebody there is kind of scolding us, scolding itself for being in control of the breath. Don't be in control. You can just let it be. But there's still a sense of somebody needing to be there to make things happen. So we're learning to let the, the awareness know the activity, like the activity of the breath, without being confused by the activity. So this is the thing, when the mind really relaxes, it understands there is, in this case, breathing, and there is the breathing being known. And in a way, they can't be separated, but they're two things. There's freedom, and then there's the activity. The activity is conditioned. It comes and goes. It's just, you know, it's interdependent. And then there's the peace or the freedom with the activity, the absence of neurotic struggle, neurotic grasping. I'll just end with this quote from Ajahn Sumedho, who's talking about the Four Noble Truths, and we'll be ending this topic tonight, although we'll be 
in different ways coming back to it over and over again. It's so central. He says, Ajahn Tomato, this Western Buddhist monk, wonderful teacher, he says, in Theravada Buddhist practice, these Four Noble Truths are all we contemplate. As we meditate and live more mindfully and more carefully, these truths become very clear to us through direct experience. So when the Buddha was asked what he believed in or taught, he said, I teach suffering, its origin, cessation, and path. The Brahmins would ask, is there a God? What happens to the enlightened one when he passes away? But all the Buddha would say was, all that arises, passes away, and is not self. There is suffering, it has a beginning and an end, and there's a way out of it. That's all I teach. Brilliant minds, great intellectuals have all kinds of ideas about ultimate reality and utopian philosophies. They have magnificent systems of reason and logic, but they don't know their own bodies and minds. They haven't learned from the conditions they experience all the time. And this is what I find so valuable in these teachings is that it really points us, if they're taught correctly, it's always pointing to our own experience. We have to become independent in these teachings through understanding our own experience. Otherwise, it's just another self-centered trip. You know, getting interested in Buddhist practice can be just another trip for us. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from people from people about your practice. Any questions you have about what I've said? And please say your name if you decide to speak up. So what comes to mind? Your experience of dukkha, its cause, moments of cessation, and understanding the path. Yeah. My name is Bird, um, and I I just wanted to share that for a while, I've, before even starting to come here, I've been struggling a bit with going back to journaling, because I notice over and over again that my experience is of looping the suffering, and that and that I've thought about it in a way that's like, oh, that's helpful, it's this brain drain, getting it all out, that's the way I've heard it described, but so I was originally going to ask you what you thought about that, but then also just sitting here I thought that what I know is that I'm having trouble coming to it honestly in the moment if I want to do it at all. And that's the other part, that I don't have to journal if I'm not moved to journal. So there's a whole series of complex little things that have that my mind and I have been talking about before I even get to this moment of either doing it or not doing it, which feels like failure or success. And uh, so that's all. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And the key, this is what's so important about and useful about these teachings, because all that sounds like important and worthy of figuring out, but. And, and, and on a therapeutic level, it might actually be useful. But from this, from the Buddhist teachings point of view, what's relevant is immediately that not knowing whether you should journal or not is itself stressful. And you can get interest, and interested in that. Oh, not being uncertain is stressful. Well, 
this is relevant. I mean, in this moment, the feeling of not knowing and that it's unpleasant, it's stressful, this is relevant. Can I open to this? So you're not saying you're not going to decide the question. You're just saying, before I decide the question, I'm going to be interested in the pain of being uncertain. Okay, it's like this. And then you open to it. And in opening to it, you get to do the second noble truth. Oh, the actual stress, it's being caused right now because I, you know, I'm the person who thinks they should know whether journaling is good or bad, you know. Or, you know, that uh, I feel disconcerted that I'm always wishy-washy, you know. So, and you're, you're just observing in that balanced way, and you're seeing, oh, the mind's attached. You know, attached to the image of being the journaler, or attached to the image of not needing to journal, or, you know, but the mind is caught in some way. And you're seeing that that being caught is happening right now. And then if you keep watching that, you'll see it cease. And you'll notice what a relief that is. Not to have to have an opinion. Not to have to resolve. I mean, it either resolves itself or it doesn't. But that, that you don't have to identify with the problem that the mind has created, that the conditioned or habit mind has created. You can just see it and then notice without feeding it, it ceases on its own. And you experience some relief. And then you still haven't resolved whether you're going to journal or not. But now, all of a sudden, it's not a self-centered trip. It doesn't involve a heavy sense of self that you get the, the right answer. So if you journal, fine. If you don't journal, fine. And so now the choice to journal or not journal isn't going to be dependent on some neurotic sense of self that is going to happen for some other reason, like maybe there's just some wholesome joy in doing it. or. Maybe you found something else you'd rather do. But it's not bound up with a, a fearful, neurotic sense of self. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, say your name again. My name's Eamon. And I had a, you, you made me think of something. I was just going to listen, but you made me think of something when you just spoke. What was your name? Bird. Bird. Well, I got to a point maybe nine months ago where I just absolutely had to abandon looking at life as a struggle. I just had to. Self-preservation, I just had to. And I've been meditating a lot. And I got rid of all of my journals because of the similar thing that you're talking about. Because my journals were all filled with struggle and pain. And, and, and I, I just didn't, I don't know, it was probably ego. I didn't want to. I didn't want to die and have my relatives read what my life was about. <laughs> and that was part of it, but I just, I don't know. I mean, I had to get rid of it, and I don't know what to do with the idea of journaling any longer. I, I, I kind of let go of it. But that was something that I just, it wasn't really something that I decided to do. It was sort of maybe, I guess, a byproduct of abandoning viewing life as a struggle. Right, because a lot of journaling, no, it doesn't have to be this way, but a lot of journaling is like, I know something's wrong, so the mind is very much identified with this idea that there's a problem that needs to be solved. So it's still thinking it's a hammer and sees life as, and then the journaling is like you're trying out, well, is it this problem that I need to solve? You know, and you're, as you write, you get a sense, no, that's not it. And you, so this is sort of a, it can be, in a good sense, journaling can be sort of therapeutic where we're moving from more from um, less neuro I mean more neurotic stories to less neurotic stories because when we write them out we realize well that's a really heavy story let me 
let me reframe my story, you know, how I see my life, how I see what's important. This is what people get sometimes in talk therapy too. By asking questions and having people reflect, people can, in a sense, reorganize their stories about themselves so that they're less toxic and more integrated with the facts on the ground and maybe shed more light and uh, just maybe the stories are a little bit more nimble. So that can be quite good that we're still in the realm of being a somebody with problems. So then, if you continue to journal, what I would do is just infuse it with mindfulness. So you're just noticing that the whole activity, even when it's relatively wholesome, is heavy. And you're looking at, why is it heavy? You're interested in that. You're interested in the heaviness and the cause for the heaviness. And you're saying, oh, it's that I'm identified with the stories that I'm writing down. There's a somebody who owns or is associated with that story, and that's tight. That's a heavy experience. And we're, as you observe that, see that that burden can be put down. It is being put down, actually. And we really want to notice the time when the mind just doesn't hold on. You've got to like reestablish the identification with the story. But if you can just watch the cessation of the grasping of the identification, and then the mind won't want to pick it up again it will realize the third number truth, like a moment of, of not being caught in the story. Like there's a story there in my, in my journal, but in a very real sense, in terms of your direct experience, it doesn't belong to anybody. There isn't anybody who that story is, right? Because isn't that true? Even though, in a sense, your relatives, if they read it, would you know, associate, in a sense, you with this, but the fact is what's written down there is not you, is it, in any real way? But that's the delusion. It feels so personal. Even like, you know, I just got a new computer and you know how you have to take a picture of yourself. Now I've got to figure out how to get rid of the picture. <laughs> that's not me. Every time, every time I turn my computer on, there's that picture. I just don't have the time to figure out how do you get rid of that picture. You had an option, you could put like, you know, a bird or, you know, you can have all these other sort of, whatever they call them, other photographs, but I didn't know what I was doing, so I just pushed this button and just snapped a picture of me. <laughs> you know, and it's like, as if that picture is me, you know, whatever that means. But there's, you know, we take it personally. We take all these things personally. When we say something stupid, we take it so personally. When we say something profound, we take it so personally. It creates so many problems. <coughs> Other thoughts people have? Yeah, say your name. My name is Gary. Um, rocks are cool and they can really help. Yeah. Um, rocks? Yeah, stones, crystals, things like that. Yeah, I don't have too much experience. Like, you know, you talk about like taking a picture and you're like, well, that's not me here, you know, it's kind of like with the, sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over here, but like with the journaling thing where, you know, like if someone were to see that or experience that, you know, it's not you, well, it's like a stone that with you, you can share that energy with people just by letting them hold on to it or whatnot and kind of experience each other. Oh, no, that way. So, Thanks for sharing that. Share. Yeah, appreciate that. What's your name? Oh, my name's Catherine, and I just wanted to say that it must be the gathering of the 
And those are exactly the kind of situations, you know, that we, we want to hear about because it kind of grounds these teachings. Like, how, how could that be okay? There's so much shame around making a mistake or being part of something like that, you know? Like, uh, we feel like uh, if I'm a good human being, only good things should happen to me. When we're just sharing, you know, uh, yet another one of our friends about our age has a very aggressive brain cancer. And it's like, it's so easy for me, and I think, just, I, I don't think I'm more like than other people, but maybe more sensitive to it, but I just notice how my mind, like, like, uh, well, that wouldn't happen to me. You know, it's like, that only happens to people, you know, that must have have some dark thing in their, sh in their closet, some shadow in their closet, that they get this aggressive brain cancer. But to, to just understand that that uh, messiness is just endemic. And the, and the thing is, let's just assume we were perfect in all of our previous lifetimes. But we live in a world that's interdependent, so things can happen to us even if we've been perfect. All of our good work, let's say we have really done all our, learned all our lessons in the past, 
the way that uh, helps us now isn't that we don't get cancer or don't get in car accidents, but that we have the wherewithal to want to be skillful with what's ever happening to us, as opposed to just blindly believing our reactive tendencies. You know, that's the fruit of practice. Not that bad things don't happen or terrible things don't happen to good people. The people who have been doing good work, there's more kind of spit, more space with around the, the difficulty, the messiness. So I appreciate you kind of opening up about it, Spurs. Maybe time for one more comment if anybody else would like to share something with the group. Yeah. My name is Utra. Uh, I've had this experience often uh, at the end of my meditation when my body is perfectly still and relaxed and my breath is smooth and even and my heart's calm, peaceful, and my mind is bright and alert and it's time to come out of it. And I don't want to come out of it. Mm. And I, I argue with myself. I'm, it, it's time to quit, but I didn't want to quit. And is this clinging? Is, is this, it kind of, it's a bad ending when yeah. it ends because I don't want to go out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it is kind of form of clinging. Yeah. So you need to inspire yourself like, uh, like the beauty of your mind state it, at, in your med, at near the end of your meditation, it's like it's totally okay to appreciate it as a beautiful thing. And you can even say that, you know, maybe you don't even need words, but just that recognition that this is a beautiful thing. This is something to deeply appreciate, meaning it's something to be really awake to, this beauty, the stillness, the peacefulness, the quietness. And then you need to inspire yourself to see that the, this beauty also is impermanent and that you really want to ground yourself in the impermanence of it. So it's dependent on particular conditions that have allowed it to arise. The training you've done with your mind, the relative uh, security and uh, quietness of the room you're in, you know, all of the different uh, intentions in your mind all have come together and allow this very peaceful mind to arise. And then in other situations, when you're shopping, when you're doing this, when you're doing that, then different mind, different qualities of mind will be sort of uh, triggered, right? And you'll have maybe some anxiety or maybe some greed or maybe some of this or maybe some of that. So take that time, that transition time, to realize that this beautiful state comes and goes. And then be interested, what will protect me when I don't have conditions? Like, someday you're going to be old and sick and die. So it will be hard to have that beautiful samadhi in those moments, right? Because the mind will be dealing with physical pain and maybe fear and uh, maybe just other kinds of uh, problems, you know, just uh, difficulties in the mind when we get older. So what sort of understanding or insight will allow for freedom and peace there? You want to be interested in that. 
and then use that little transition from the samadhi back into the world to look for a wisdom that isn't dependent on, on that sort of stillness. Like, it, that's really what non-clinging is. So the stillness is fantastic. It's a really important part because it will make this insight work much more deep because the mind is so quiet. So when you do have insight, it will get integrated more deeply. It will sort of have a more powerful effect. Just like we can have these insights with a very superficial mind, and they'll have a superficial effect. Or we can have the same insight, but with a very still, quiet mind, because we've been practicing every day, and then some of that quietness we take into the world. And those insights are going to be integrated much more deeply, have a, a much bigger effect on the mind. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Uttara. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take one or two easy breaths.